I was so bloody busy, I didn't have time to scratch or think. I was also putting out a lot of fires. And so now in and around the mission of life by design, I want to live my life how I want to live it. I'm really about today cultivating systems in my business so I can essentially fire myself if I want to. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen over the next three, four, five years. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest today originally hails from Australia. He's been living and investing in the United States here since 2011. He's the co-founder of Wildhorn Capital, where he and his partner, Andrew Campbell, control over $175 million in multifamily property. He is the host of the weekly podcast, Investing in the U.S., and he has a new book out called Investing in the U.S., The Guide to U.S. Real Estate. And we're going to talk to him about multifamily syndication. Reed Goosens, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. G'day, mate. How's it going? G'day, guys, I should say. Yeah, good. (laughs) It's great to have you. Great to have you. Thank you. So I want to go into a little bit of your story, and I've heard it before, so I want to cover it and then get into real estate. So you had quite the adventurous life before you got into real estate, before you came to America. You backpacked your way through Europe. Mm -hmm. You met your eventual wife on that trip. You worked on a Russian billionaire's yacht, which someday I would love to hear more of that story. (laughs) (laughs) Over over beer. beer. (laughs) (laughs) Sailed across the Atlantic. Door knocked your way into a job as a structural engineer in New York City. Helped build some some of the infrastructure for the 2012 London Olympic Games. And then somewhere in there, within six months of moving to the United States, you had bought your first investment property. Um, does, that, does that cover most of the highlights? That's that's that's, that's all the highlights. Okay. Let's wrap it up now and we'll, we'll go home, right? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Reed. It's been great. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that first property that you invested yeah. in? So the, the, the little bit before the story was I picked up the book Rich Dad poured out in 09. And so there was a lot of self-teaching along the way before I just bought my first property. It wasn't just like, oh, you just bought your first property. It was... 2009, educated myself in Australia about, you know, went to rears and all that sort of stuff in Aussie, was going to do some a flip or a lease option there. It eventually moved to the United States in early 2012, in 2011 to 2012. Within like two weeks of being fresh off the boat was like at my first New York rear and, and I thought, geez, you know, I thought I'd, I'd learned a lot in the last two and a half years, you know, since 2009 or 10 when I picked up that book, Richard put it, but I didn't realise just, New York's on steroids when it comes to, you know, fast-talking Americans and our lingo in Australia was a lot different to here. So really, I, I spent the first sort of six months, I had a good foundation in Australia, but I had to sort of tweak my mind a little bit to understand that the American way of, of doing business, you know, what's an LLC and how to open up a bank account and blah, blah, blah. And, but then I realized, geez, the barriers to entry here in the United States are so much lower than Australia. And I was, I was living in New York City, so I couldn't invest in New York City, but 
a four-hour driveway in upstate New York and Syracuse, there was $30,000, $40,000 properties. And I couldn't get financing, so I sort of had to I had to buy it all cash. And, and I had a bit of savings coming over from Australia, and, and I put it really, really all my savings into that first property. And the reason I couldn't get financing was because I had no credit. And again, I didn't even know what a hell of a credit score was when I first got here. So all these learning things, but... You ask how it, it sort of it's not just within six months and read boom you, you did it it was it was yeah. a, it was a longer tail to that but it was got to the point where I was I think writing New York Subway my nose in a book about real estate investing and it's kind of like reading a book about it's like like reading a book about going to the gym you don't get fit just reading about it you got to go do it so it was really an opportunity to to get my money working for me and, and really get my feet wet and and it was. You know, I, I could go out and pay a guru to just keep learning, 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 or I just go out and do it myself. So I really got to that point of like um, analysis paralysis and just had to go pull the trigger. So yeah. so, yeah. And so that first property was a duplex? It, it was a tri- actually a triplex for 38000 bucks. It was $38,000. Yeah, $38,000. It was a, 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 like a mother-daughter, so a, a, a bottom and a top. Uh, on one side of the property, and then a, I guess the technically a single family house, a separate dwelling, all on the one lot. So it was triplex, I say, but uh, it was really good lesson in section eight. And and on paper, it works great, right? Like these yeah. 11 caps. So, you know, wow. But, you know, uh, when you sink all your savings into that first property, you hope it works. And uh, it, it, it didn't work out as, as, as planned. We had a, it was a drive-by shooting. Uh, the first six months was great. And then- after Drive-by shooting, there was an actual drive-by shooting. There was, that- there was an actual drive-by shooting because the tenant's son, one of the tenant's sons was part of a local gang. Anyway, it just, there was a shot <laughs> fire. I think one shot fire, the police were called. And like this neighborhood is, or the street that we bought the property on, or I bought the property on was, you know, other long-term residents there. So it was sort of just like, whoa, 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 we've got to kick this, this lady out. But it sort of really was a good introduction into, and, and hindsight, looking back on it, when you buy something for $38,000, put, I put about 10 grand into it. So I'm probably all in for, say, 50. But when the individual unit's only renting for like $650, $700 a month, you're not really attracting the best type of tenant. And then also coupled with that, your property manager, you only got three little units even if they're making seven, eight percent, it's not a lot of money on, yeah. say, a, a gross check of maybe fifteen hundred bucks. So you know, we weren't getting a lot of. It. I wasn't getting a lot of attention from a property manager, and it was just a really good wake-up call about you know understanding the lessons of scale and maybe entering the market at a little bit higher purchase price to not have to deal with you know the riffraff of, of, of Section Eight. I know a lot of people who do really well with Section Eight, but sure. it's when you're out of state. I wasn't out of state investing; but I was four hours away. It wasn't really. I wasn't hands-on management. I probably should have been, but you know, lesson learned. I was able to leverage into it the second deal, a little, a little triplex, a little duplex for forty-eight thousand, forty-five thousand dollars, and then was able to get into my first, flip my first home in Philadelphia. Or and this is all whilst I was living in New York City. So yeah, got started, so, got got my feet wet, right? <laughs> yeah. Would you? So would you buy that triplex again, knowing what you know now? No, no. <laughs> I, wouldn't, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. The big thing is what I've learned really quickly is that even though I was able to put say the ten grand into it and it was, you know, whatever that was per unit, so three thousand three hundred and thirty dollars per, you know, it wasn't exactly yeah. down the middle, but I was able to increase rents, you know, by a hundred bucks or one hundred twenty bucks. So I got it up to like six fifty or seven hundred dollars. 
but just the scales and there's just three units. And, and I thought that was great on paper because it just means more cash flow for me. Yeah. But the value of the asset wasn't going up because it wasn't dictated to, you know, it was a sort of resi. So, but it, it just, it got, it got me started, right? And, just, and, and, and I was okay to, and this is not for everyone, but I was okay to lose that 30 or 40,000 bucks that I put into that property because I just need to get started. And it, it wasn't necessarily a bad, a bad investment because on paper it was great. Like it all worked out. $1,200 a month. My mortgage was $300 a month. Expenses, maybe 500 bucks a month. You know, I was cash flowing. For the first six months, I was cash flowing $700, $800 a month, which is really good, you know. And then it just, when you combine Section A, the type of tenants, it just, there was, you make money when you buy, you lose money through property management. <laughs> That's my new motto. Yeah. So yeah. It, looking back on it, I probably, I wouldn't buy it today, but it was the best start I could have possibly had. Yeah, I often hear uh, experienced investors talk about that sweet spot between about nine hundred and eleven hundred dollars a month rent. You know, you're, you're attracting the kind of tenant. You know, it's not A class, it's not D class. It's sort of work, it's workforce housing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 not wealthy people, but they're you know they're good hardworking people who know how to manage their money, and that's wow. often the, the issue that you run into with Section Eight housing. Is the people are just terrible at managing their money. And look, back in back in 2011, 2012, there was a lot of Aussies, international folks buying turnkey properties in these types of areas. I, I didn't buy turnkey property, I did it myself, yeah. but I could see the attractiveness of it, you know, maybe in a single family. And now looking back, uh, any advice, my advice for anyone who's looking at the turnkey space is have the dollars to go and buy not just one, like for 80 grand, like try and have the dollars to buy four or five, so it's a little bit of a more more of a pool. Your property manager will probably be able to manage it a lot easier and attra- you'll, you'll get their attention. And uh, if they're single family, you don't have necessarily issues of that living in close quarters, which is probably one of the issues that, that I have. Yeah. But on that second duplex that I bought for 45000 bucks, it was immigrant family, paid on time. It was an ATM, complete ATM, and it was oh. it was great. But I couldn't scale and I got to the end of my tether pretty quickly in terms of what I could borrow just with my job and lack of credit and all that sort of stuff. So I had to take it to the next level. So was there any financing? There was no finance on that first deal. Yeah. And so then did you were you able to do a little bit of financing on that on some of the next deals? Yeah. So what, how I went about doing it was it wasn't creative, creative whatever. Was. I went and approached a local bank in Syracuse knowing that I needed a, a mano-a-mano relationship with the bank manager. And, and so I went and created this, you know, I think it was, what was it called First Niagara Bank. So very local. They're only in like upstate New York. And so when I was depositing rental checks every month, uh, you know, I, I could show a period of six months of rental checks and say, hey, can I get a line of credit or something? This place is only probably worth 50 grand. Can you give me a line of credit of like twenty five dollars or $30,000 in order so I can buy house number two? And they did that. So it's essentially putting it down as collateral. And I had saved a little bit more money from my job, you know, to, to then go and buy, you know, using a $30,000 line of credit with uh, another, you know, my own cash to buy house number two. But then again, I was cash flowing a little bit, probably maybe a thousand, a bit over a thousand bucks, probably twelve hundred bucks a month between the two assets, which was great. Um, but I had used all my savings in these two properties, and um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it, it, it did make me nervous because again, I was okay. The, the worst case scenario for me was that well, I, I was already getting paid really well as an engineer, so I keep doing that, <laughs> you know. So yeah, it, well, the, the, the 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 failure, the um, option B wasn't that bad. Yeah, he had a pretty good safety net to yeah, exactly. not 
not be nervous about yeah. did. So did you end up selling those to then go to that next step? So I sold the, so I sold the, after I probably owned the first triplex for about a bit over 18 months and uh, I made my money back. I made a little bit more, I think I made four grand more than what I put it all put into it. And then there was a cash flow over the period of the, you know, call it 12 months out of the 18 months because of the issues with tenants. So yeah, made, made a bit of money, didn't lose my shirt. Fantastic. Uh, and then held the, the other one for a little bit over two and a half years and then got you know got rid of it to just be more liquid uh, when I was developing my business. So, so, yeah. So were there any like big failures during that time period? I mean, besides drive-by shootings. <laughs> yeah. well, I think just everything I said before, you know, like the understanding of scale, right? And, and, and when you're trying to, when numbers on paper and they dirt cheap and you know slumdog millionaire type of stuff it looks great on paper but it might in, in reality you need that 80 to $150,000 property to attract that 900 to $1,300 rent on a single family to get a better quality tenant again they're not class A they're not white collar but they're blue collar and they're hard work and they just want a family want a roof over their head at a reasonable yeah. price and so it was just a little bit about understanding the game of property management and how it can make or break your deal. So call it failure, call it you know, lesson learned, whatever. But mm. it's, it's just it is something I look back on and, and go, yeah, completely correct. And again, I know plenty of people who've been so successful in that turnkey single family triplex forty thousand dollar area, but they're they're, they're they're boots on the ground. They they got their crews going and they just they they run not the slums, but they run the bad part of the tracks. And they do. They, investors make really a, a lot of money, but there's also high risk in terms of things can go wrong. Drive-by shootings, mm-hmm. people don't pay. You've got to evict more. That's why the cap rate is so high. Because with cap rate, for your listeners out there, if they don't know, the higher the cap rate, the more risky the deal is. Mm-hmm. So if you see a deal that says 11 cap, then you know, like, understand why it's 11 cap compared to something that might be only five cap. So you really need to understand the differences between the two. And that was maybe something I didn't know or or understand at the time because I was just looking for cash flow, thinking Mm -hmm. that that was what I wanted. But really, I also wanted cash flow and appreciation, which I ultimately got into syndication and multi, larger multifamily. Well, that's, that's a nice transition. What led you to shift gears from residential into commercial? Yeah, so the whole mindset around like, you know, I'd got these, I had two properties in upstate New York. You know, I had, uh, I was flipping a house in Philadelphia uh, that was with a partner. And I I remember my buddy from Canada came down and we studied, we were in the same college a few years apart in Australia. And he came down to New York City for, I can't remember what, for in 2013. And we went out for a beer. And I was like, man, I've got like five, five, five units in upstate New York. And I've got this flip that I'm about to start, like killing it, but I'm still like working my day job. And, and he was like, oh man, that's awesome. I just closed on a 70 units. And I was like, 70, like seven zero. And he's like, yeah, 70. And I was like, how the hell did you do that? And he's like, well, I raised some money from my, my mom and dad and some uh, two buddies who came invo- involved and we got the seller to do the seller to carry back financing. I was like, whoa, whoa. And I heard all these things, but I hadn't seen it executed on such a large scale. And, you know, he really had, you know, smart guy and, and, and sort of that was the other, the second aha moment in my life where he was like, look, we can force that NOI if we you know, go in and spend 5000 bucks on the unit, increase by $100, you know, that has a massive uh, massive value uh, in creation. And I'd known about that, but just on my single, on the, on the less than four units on the resi side with the, the, the triplex and the duplex, I couldn't go and force that cap, uh, force that appreciation. 
But on the scale side of the 70, when it's commercial, he couldn't. He, you know, he, he essentially explained it to me like that. And he and I said, how'd you learn all this? And he said, oh, I had got a mentor. And so I knew that I was coming to that stage in my already just like I need that next kick in the butt, so, so to yeah. speak. And, you know, I got to the end of my tether on the lending. I couldn't lend it. I couldn't borrow anymore. I was, you know, doing credit cards to, to, to pay, you know, for the materials for the, the flip in Philadelphia. So it was just I needed that next up my game. And that's where a mentor came in and, and went out and actively found a mentor. And then from there, developed my brand uh, about investing in the US because I'd gone through all these trials and tribulations as a foreigner and uh, started the podcast. And now, you know, four years, four, five years later, it's, here we are. So, yeah. So when you began raising capital for these large multifamily syndications, how did you go from changing people's perceptions, you know, of you as Reed Goosen's, you know, structural engineer to Reed uh, multifamily syndicator? Yeah, good question. Very difficult to do. That takes a long <laughs> period of time. I, I, you know, with you guys, this is a newer podcast and it's, it's a leap of faith that you've got to put yourself out there, put your message out there. And again, I was a structural engineer. I had no idea about branding or, you know, how to be a key person of influence in my sphere, blah, blah, blah. And I just really said, screw it, back yourself, man. You've already moved halfway across the world. Like, just give it a go. And probably my dad and my mum were the only listeners at the first time. But I had something to say. And I think I had a valuable education piece because so many people were wanting to invest in, in the United States and still do to this day. And there was no one in the, in the podcasting space that had that angle, right? Uh, here's a guy who's actually come from abroad. He's now here living here and he's gone through all these issues. Well, that's what I choreographed the, the, the first 20, 25 episodes of my podcast around learning the steps to get me to, you know, successfully investing in, in some of the, you know, the failures like we just, we just spoke about. But it, does, it takes a long time, right? It takes, it takes uh, concerted effort and, and consistency to tell people and remind people that you are shifting from, in my case, a structural engineer into raising capital. And it took many years of me still doing the two things, right? Work and job trying to find deals, trying to raise capital. It was just like sort of spinning all the plates in the air and it was a lot of work, but consistency does breed change and that change people then start to understand what you're doing. And, it, you know, my role as a syndicator, as a capital raiser is to educate others about the, the opportunities that I'm seeing and uh, the podcast was just one platform that I used to able with, 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 with a microphone to, to tell to get my message out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you started off, did you go straight into being a part of the entire syndication team? Did, were you doing all of it? Were you underwriting deals, uh, finding capital, talking to owners, talking to brokers? Were you doing yeah. did you do it all or you just focus on one side? It's a good question. The plan was to just focus on the one side. But when I moved to LA in uh, 2000 and late 2013, early 2014, met a gentleman who was here actively asset managing. He was still working full time. He taught me a little bit more, more sophisticated about underwriting and then that helps for uh, an introduction to my mentor, and those, and I, and he had a really good deal in, in Houston, and really I just played matchmaker Cupid and introduced the two of them because I knew my mentor could raise some money. I knew this other gentleman had a bloody great deal, and uh, it just was just a, you know, hey guys, you need to, you know, I know one person can help the other, and initially the mentor was like, no, nah, I don't want to do it, <laughs> and then I had to go back to him because I knew this other guy. Was like, it's a good deal. I, I know this. I want to break out of my day job as well, like you. Like, how do we help each other? And it was just sort of this whole kismet scenario. And uh, I think I raised a little bit of money on that first deal. Not a lot 
with that that introduction and those those guys have gone off to some some incredible things and I was involved in their syndication some of the other uh, follow-up syndications after that first deal and then I eventually started doing my own deals and um, that was you know a long time coming and I had to build processes and all that sort of stuff but that first big major quote-unquote syndication was really getting getting quote-unquote partners or people in the boat that can all roll in the same direction and maybe take take part of the uh, responsibilities off that other person who might have found the deal, but that person might not be really good at capital raising and the person who's good at capital raising might be good at finding the deal. So there was we all had a role to play and it was, uh, it was a beautiful thing to watch. <laughs> That's awesome. So partnerships can be a double-edged sword. They're not always the most beautiful thing. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how you found your partner and maybe some of the things, you know, maybe some tips for somebody if they're out looking for a partner? Because it is, syndication's a big nut to crack. Right. It is not a, I don't know many syndicators are doing it all by themselves. They're almost all have some sort of partner, a team. There's a lot of moving parts. How did you find your partner? Yeah, well, the what had happened is after they raising a bit of money, started the podcast, started the branding stuff, had raised a bit of money on some small deal, or not small deals, but other people's deals, started to then say, well, hey, I need to do this by myself. The gentleman who had who had brought that first deal to you know to the, to the scenario where I introduced the mentor, he was still sort of sending me these little these little deals, you know, like he was doing two hundred and fifty units, and he was sending me deals in Dallas for like fifty units, and I knew that I was still working full time. I had sort of my underwriting systems somewhat set up and I went and hired two uh, analysts from USC, uh, just 15 bucks an hour undergrads. And they were underwriting deals and I was, you know, putting offers in, in, in uh, properties, you know, 50 to 70 units, getting the best and final. So clearly underwriting correctly, but not having that, that little bit of edge to get over the, the, the finish line. And through all this networking that I was doing, uh, a gentleman uh, who you had on your podcast before, Dave Thompson, introduced me to my now business partner, Andrew Campbell. And it was just more that Andrew had a skill set that I didn't have, which was that he was boots on the ground in Texas. And I had a skill set that he didn't have, which was coming from an engineering background, understanding the details, uh, had a better better had a better mousetrap for, for underwriting and how to underwrite. And it was just sort of like, well, he could hustle as hard as I could hustle. We're sort of roughly the same age, or not roughly, but you know, a couple of years apart, but in sort of our mid, mid, early to mid-30s. And, um, and it was just really that, it was that opportunity that I needed someone, I, you know, I partnered with guys on flips in Philadelphia, I partnered, you know, raised money for other people, partnering with like co-GPing, all this sort of stuff. It just, I needed to get into bed, you know, stop dating all these people and get into bed with someone because it was just, I, again, syndication is, a, as you said, a, a tough nut to crack. If you don't understand all the roles and responsibilities, you can't. You can't literally wear all the hats. You can't raise the money, find the deal, you know, do the due diligence, you know, oversee the property management. Like you, just, you need something to, to, to relieve the pressure and that's what a partner can do. And so when you're looking for a partner, I always recommend you need to find someone who can, who is a complementary skill set to you as a person because there's no point in having two same chefs, sous chefs who can cook the same thing in the kitchen. Like you need someone who can do Mexican, you need someone who can do Italian <laughs> because it's just it's different cuisines and you need to understand what you're good at and let go or find someone else who can be that other part that you're not very good at in terms of your skill set. So, yeah. yeah. So multifamily, it's becoming much more popular. It's kind of the the hot, the hot thing, the hot thing in, the, in, in the real estate world. Is there, have there been any changes that you're having to adjust to in sort of this market that's exploding a little bit? Yeah. So obviously in the last five years, five to pretty much since 2011, when 
things were starting to get back on track with after recession. A lot of people have made a lot of money in the last five to seven years, and that's great. But what's happening now is that we're seeing with the influx of so much capital coming from outside, particularly internationally, uh, we're seeing the returns reducing. And so when returns reduce, investors are saying, well, hang on, I don't, I expected this return from you know, the glory days. And it's like, well, that's not, we're not in the glory days anymore. And there was always going to be a plateau. You couldn't just go up at a 45 degree angle. And so it's now the, 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 big, the big shift is changing people's expectations of returns. And where I come from in Australia, doubling your money in 10 years is a really good return. And, and so when people are doubling their money in three years and then they're shocked to see, well, I can't double my money anymore in three years. It takes seven years. We're like, okay, we're just back to a normal. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Get, it's still a really good return. Like you, you, you're literally not lifting your finger. Show me something in the stock market that is backed by a physical asset, has all the tax advantages. It does exactly the same returns. You won't be able to show me that. So it's about my, you know, my perspective of being international coupled with the fact that we are coming into a bit more of a plateau in the multifamily housing market. I don't think in terms of the pendulum swing of, you know, you look back, I remember that first deal I helped with uh, as two gentlemen I mentioned earlier in the show, it was a seven and a half cap for 2,000 built 250 units in Houston. Now, in 2013, 2014, there was blood on the street in Houston. And looking back at that, that's fantastic. Now, things are trading for in Houston at five, five and a half cap. Do, will we pendulum swing back the other way? A, a little bit, but we're not going to pendulum swing all the way back to seven and a half caps. I think we're going to pendulum swing back to maybe a six, six and a quarter cap. So really understanding your financing and understanding what you're buying these days, and it's very frothy, the market is super frothy, but it's understanding, okay, what are you going in at? What's a stabilised cap rate going to be? Uh, and how does that compare to his, his, uh, historical cap rates? And then how do you expand that when you're on an exit to, to make an exit assumption? And is that in line with how the market is going to change? And again, when you underwrite a deal, we don't have crystal ball. We, have a, we, we make an assumption on, on an exit point at some point in the future. And if we, if we did have crystal ball, we'd be in a different business. But, um, but yeah, back to your original question is like, what are we seeing changing? Cap rates are always going to have to compress, you know, hugely, but also the returns to investors have started to change as well. And I think as we approach the long tail of the, you know, where we are in the, the recovery, is my thesis is that I'm doubling down in true growth markets like Austin, Texas, where supply and demand, uh, the, the demand outstrips the supply. And... Yeah. You know, a market like Austin has transitioned into a very much coastal city like LA or, or New York, and it's very much on the world map. And that's why we are doubling down. But that also means lower risk and hence lower returns. So, but we mm-hmm. are, we also then lower your risk of the, the potential to, for the deal to blow up is a lot lower because this, the demand is still there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Theoretically, I would assume people can maybe put more in. Just money-wise, they can invest in more spots because it's not as risky to sure. have it, you know. Sure. Know. And are you, uh, is Wildhorn Capital only in the Texas market right now? Only in the Texas market right now. We're definitely seeing, um, we want to build out plus 1,000 units in any MSA. So we've got nearly 1,000 units in San Antonio. We're trying to build 1,000 units in Austin. We'll probably try and build 1,000 units in Houston. But that the reason we're doing that is because we then get efficiencies of scale, economies of scale, I should say. And you know, guys that are very scatterbrained, like, oh, I've got a, you got a Denver deal and I've got an Alabama deal and I've got a North Carolina deal, you don't get the true economies of scale with a massive portfolio. And that comes from not only from an operation point of view, but from an exit point of view, 
you know, if we've got a thousand units in San Antonio, you know, two thousand units in San Antonio and Austin, it's so much more attractive to a private equity firm to come and scoop them all up once we've done all the hard work. And that's what definitely I'm steering the ship towards, rather than like, oh, I've got something over, you know, three different states. It's like, no, it's not as attractive to to a private equity firm. So, or we can just sell them individually. But I'm I'm allowing myself the multiple exit opportunity by making sure I have more than a thousand units in any particular MSA. So, so yeah. So for, you know, for the average investor that's maybe coming into this, listening to this podcast and they, their only experiences with residential real estate, can you give sort of explain how, how a syndicator makes money? Yeah. So a syndicator makes money. It's really, they make money on the front end and the back end. A syndicator makes a fee uh, to, to pull the deal together to allow investors to invest alongside them, him or her. And really, it is a fee for going out and, you know, for every one deal that you get presented by a syndicator, there's probably 60 other deals that they've had to chase, underwriting, hours and hours of work. And so it's typically a 2% fee of the purchase price that goes to the syndication team, you know, the whole, everyone in the, in, in the GP. And then you, there's usually a asset management fee uh, that comes along with it uh, throughout the hold. And then on the back end, you know, there's obviously, depends on how you structure the deal, but in our deals, it's typically 70-30 split. So any upside that the property produces, 70% goes to the investors and then 30% goes to the GP. So again, we're, we're really the custodians of people's money and making sure that it's in, in a good deal and, and, and you know, we can keep the lights on in our own business to support that deal and make sure the deal is doing what it's supposed to be doing. But then that's, you know, then when we come to an exit is when we really, really make our nut. And, uh, and, and you know, I always look, think of it like planting a big oak tree. And, you know, we're just planting a bunch of oak trees and in, ten, in five to seven years' time, you know, my business partners and I will will, will profit. Um, up till then, we're just making sure we've, we've, we're identifying the right deals, we're asset managing correctly, and we're making sure that the deal is hitting uh, as close to pro forma as possible. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. again, it goes back to the crystal ball analogy. Things can happen in the market that you have no control over, and yeah. that is part of our responsibility as as asset managers, as syndicators, to make sure that we're keeping investors uh, in tune with what's happening in the market and, and reacting to to issues if, if something does arise. And, and, you know, that's okay if it does, um, but just make sure you, you, you've gone in with enough conservatism to understand that you can pivot or you can do something to, to, to avoid whatever might be coming down the road. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, t- you're talking a lot about capital preservation and alignment of interest, which is one of the right. things that I love so much about syndication. A good syndicator is really good about making sure there's a good alignment of interest between themselves and the investor. And I think at the end of the deal is that that's really where it happens. That's where, you know, I mean, you're going to make some money on, on the purchase and you're going to make a little bit of money on the asset management fee, but it's really the where where you're really getting paid is if you're performed, if you actually right. are able to do it. And then the rest of the way is just a matter of making sure you don't lose their money. Exactly. <laughs> you know? You want them to invest again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is that's the whole purpose of the game, right? You want to make sure you're being successful so that word of mouth is getting out that you did this team is really awesome and that you can 1031 any profits that you make with those original investors into deals four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, yeah. um, you talked a little while ago about perspective, like your perspectives on return turn rates for when like people in Australia, mm-hmm. do you have any other perspectives as a immigrant that you feel like yeah. people should know about that, you know, make a difference? <laughs> well, yeah. So let's, I love talking about this topic and this particularly in and around the United States. So the United States is, is the, you know, biggest you know, market GDP in the world. It was also such such an interesting landscape 
and, and both metaphorically and, and, and physically speaking. So compare any other Western world, any other Western country in the world does not have the same concoction of stuff that's going on like <laughs> the United States has. I think of the United States as a mini Europe. Every state is different. And from just a macro point of view, you know, comparing to Australia, because that's what I can compare to, we have 25 million people, so not even one-tenth of what your population is, but we're the same land mass, excluding Alaska, as mainland America. In Australia, however, we can only occupy about 18 to 20% of our land. So um, we're very much landlocked, which is the most of our country's desert. However, in America, you have you can inhabit north to south, east to west, and, and you have that population where you, it stems these tertiary and secondary markets. You also have the combination of individual states acting like individual countries, so different laws in those states from tax purposes to doing business and all that sort of stuff really makes it look like a, a mini Europe. You know, and I, 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 I always joke that uh, the only time uh, everyone in America is on the same team is when it comes to Olympics. <laughs> so besides that, it's a, yeah. it's every, every yeah. state has its different you know, different issues from yeah. lending to, to, to business, you know, even to just, you know, uh, landlord landlord rules. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that, that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that, uh, so, so that, that spores the, the sort of secondary markets. In Australia, we have secondary markets, but then you don't cash flow at all. Like there's no cash flowing going on. The, also, the other thing is we don't have gardens or we don't have multifamily full stop. You might be able to buy a six-unit complex, but to go out and buy a 250 or 300 unit garden style apartment does not exist at all in Australia. And there's mm. two reasons for that. One reason is that the government, it's all condominiums. So very much a condominium market where the government makes more money on the sum of the parts than the entire piece of as a whole. The second thing, so the second thing is the lending. We've only got four major banks in Australia. Combined, you maybe have 20 or 30 different lending arms that you could go in and, 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 and find. On the commercial side, it's even less. Uh, so when a bank doesn't have the lending, not necessarily knowledge, but when they're saying, okay, well, hang on, we're not going to lend on, if you're going to go build a multifamily deal, we're not going to lend on the end product and say, okay, it's going to be worth this because you're going to get a cap rate of X and you're going to have an NOI of Y and you're going to get a valuation of this and so we're going to lend 65% of that and off you go. They say, well, hang on, no, the government makes money through strata, like strata title, which is condominiums and, and taxations of that. So you need to go pre-sell X amount of units before we will give you the construction money. So you don't have agency debt like you do, you know, agency debt meaning Freddie and Fanny in Australia. You don't have these non, you have non-recourse, but it's definitely not as as rosy as it is here. Like you couldn't get a non-recourse debt at 4% fixed 15 years like you could in Australia and they're leveraged up to, you know, 75%. That just doesn't happen. So you might get a, a five-year uh, or, or interest only, you know, interest only five years. In Australia, you might get a seven-year term. The first two years are going to be recourse. The, and once it stabilises, it might be going to non-recourse afterwards. But you're looking at like you'll have a higher interest rate, typically four, five, five and a half, six percent 6%. So... But then you also have the other side in Australia where you have more of a capital appreciation market where, you know, I, I say to everyone, think of the Aussie market as LA, New York, San Francisco. Like there's no, there's no Dallas's or, you know, North, yeah. Charlotte, North Carolina's of the world where the cap rates are 6 or historically 6 7%. So there's all these different things. So the population obviously drives where people live. Uh, affordability, the couple that with the lending, couple that with you can inhabit your entire land, 
uh, coupled that with the way in which people uh, they lend. And so there's, you know, there's, there's so many different facets going on. And you can compare that to Europe or, or England or stuff like that. Again, it's, I lived in England. There's not just garden-style multifamily apartments that are in England. They just don't exist. And same with Europe. So, you know, historically, these garden-style multifamily apartments were built as workforce housing, which is what it is. And now with the froth in, in these secondary markets where you can go get moderate cap rates, where I can I consider a five cap and you can pick interest rates up at a four cap, that's, there's still a delta there. So I can still make cash flow and I can still get a, you know, it's a growing market in, you know, in terms of rental. So I can have that pop on the back end with the depreciation if I hold it for five, you know, seven to 10 years. So all those things are very attractive to international buyers when you compare where we come from in Australia where cap rates are sub 3%. So your interest rates are already inverted. You're not going to get cash flow. You might get you know appreciation over over ten years, but um, you're not going to get any cash flow along the way. So a lot of different things going on in that comparison, and what makes the United States very very unique from a lending, investing, and borrowing point of view. Oh yeah, oh sure, half of, <laughs> half of what you're saying, I was like, uh huh, yeah, awesome. I got it. No, no, I'm like, okay, it's fine. I got it. It's. I get it. The yeah. United States has a lot of opportunity because well, it's got. Yeah. So if you're sitting on the fence, get off the fence, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, and are there any advantages that um, foreigners have with investing in United States real estate? Uh, that maybe, maybe the. Not besides just in, just not besides just perspective. That's that's really it. We, we've got a you know the we we start behind the we don't have credit. You know, we, yeah. you know when I moved here, I didn't know anyone. I literally knew my wife who who she had family in, in, in LA, but we were in New York. I had no idea where to go, and I just had to figure it out. So no, in, in, international investors don't have you know from a taxation point of view, the IRS still tax you as any. Income from your property, even if you're a foreign owner, foreign owner, is still taxed at all the same rates. Obviously, you can appreciate that, which is great. If anything, America has a lot more advantages to investing here, like 1031 exchange money, uh, which is really, really quite popular. Um, now, how that affects people in their individual homes is uh, individual homes, individual countries. That you know, I advise you know, part of my business is that I help advise international investors about the benefits of investing here, but. The question always comes up: What about you know? What about my you know tax you know liabilities in Australia or New Zealand or France? I was like, I've got no idea. I can only help you with what's happening here. Yeah. So definitely, if people are listening to this show and they do happen to be foreign, you know, you got to take into consideration all the other benefit, all the other issues that might come along with it in terms of having U.S. income in your home country. So yeah. Yeah. now, is there? As I recall, I've heard somewhere that the SEC does not come into play. On the investor side, with a foreign investor, they don't they don't have to be accredited. Well, so two things. Um, so if you're doing a Regulation D for David, yeah, that's that's the normal reg. Yep, that is you have to be accredited. There is a Regulation S for Sam, which is mm. only international investors. So if you take mm. a, even one domestic investor, it has to be Reg D. Gotcha. Uh, so, so to your to your question, yes, the SEC is set up to protect Americans, and not set up to set to protect the rest of the yeah. world. Yeah. So, from fraudulent lending or fraudulent investing opportunities. Uh, but I've never actually executed on a, a Regulation S. Um, I have international investors in my deals. Uh, they have to go through all the same setup processes as anyone here in the United States to set up an LLC to get an IT number, blah 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 blah, banking council, that sort of stuff. Because the majority of our investors are American-based, so gotcha. we have to go down the, the regulation D. Gotcha. So 
When you started out in multifamily syndication, were there any skills that you had to sort of develop that you feel like were essential for your success? That you didn't have before you started? This is a good one. I I wrote an article and a little ebook called you know, the art and science of raising capital like a pro. One, and I, I, I coined it the 6P rule. And the first P is professionalism. And everyone thinks that you need, you know, you're not just born with 15 years worth of experience in real estate. Now, that just, it's not, not possible, even if you're born <laughs> into a real estate family. But everyone who come, who has a story and has a background in whatever their former life was, engineer, you know, tradie, accountant, whatever it was, you have skills in that um, field that you can bring into real estate. It's just another form of business. So, I was very fortunate that being a structural engineer, I was surrounded on a daily basis by big construction, understanding how to deal with sub, uh, subcontractors, understanding just how to build stuff. You know, like okay, I can tell you how to build, uh, you know, a shear frame, a forty-story building. You know, like I just know that I just know that sort of stuff. That gives me a little bit of advantage, but it also, but there's other things I speak about, like just being punctual and being. If you're going to say what you're going to say, you're going to do something and follow through. Being able to host meetings correctly, having you know, presenting yourself in a professional, transparent way—all these things—that's you, you, not real estate centric. That's just being a good person, and you can pull those skill sets from any walk of life that you've come from in the past. And and it, I always encourage people when they do come down this road of syndication and getting involved in real estate is to sit down and okay, well, what what skill sets do you think you're really good at right now, and, and list them out. And you'll be surprised that there's so much that overlaps, and and there's Besides like maybe a little bit of the construction, the, the rest of it, you can learn, you can get a lawyer. As long as you ask intelligent questions, and there's no such thing as a bad question, you'll be able to surround yourself and get the answer to whatever it might be. And um, yeah, so back to your question about skill set, look, look inwards of yourself to see what skills you currently have, because mm-hmm. that's also going to be able to shed light on what skill sets you're not good at. And that will help you go and find your partner, you know, a good partner we just spoke about before, you know, complementary mm-hmm. skill sets. So yeah. So many different facets, uh, skills can be brought from other other facets, other walks of life into real estate investing. And I, you know, don't be afraid of it. Don't you know it's all real estate. Like you've got to have these, certain, <laughs> gotta, you know, these top five things. And if I don't have them, I'm not going to be good at it. It's like no, that's yeah. not not true. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So uh, what skill sets have I taken from being an animal trainer and a nutritionist that I can bring to the <laughs> real estate world? No, I'm just kidding. You just you mentioned I thought it was funny because you're like accountant and like all these like business things, and I'm like, I don't have any of that kind of background. <laughs> Look, right, but that's you know, and, and I think where you're going with it is like, and I probably should have said some other things, but you know, you know, not everyone's comfortable on Excel, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's one skill that to be a real estate investor, you're going to have to understand numbers. If yeah. you don't understand the numbers, find that your partner or, 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 or a business partner that can help you because you have to at least understand where to poke holes. If someone presents you a deal, you need to be, you know, have a, have a, have a, a numbers, be knowledgeable enough on numbers to poke holes in the deal so you can feel good that, okay, this deal is worth it. So it's weight in gold and I want to, want to move forward. And the the wonderful thing about real estate is really the math is not really that hard. No, I mean it's not trigonometry. No, you're, you're, the math that you have to do in structural engineering is way harder. Yeah, I can I can almost guarantee. <laughs> integration. I remember integration back in the day. You know, <laughs> Inter- what what's integration? Integration being like two x squared plus one x plus c uh, plus three is you know the shape of a graph and so you can yeah. then integrate or derivative of that you can you know there's, there's all that <laughs> yeah exactly. it's fine <laughs> no i i uh, i loved math Calculus, right this is this is going way back i loved math 
up until it stopped being numbers. And once it started being X's, once it started having through some, some alphabets in there, oh man, my poor dad, who is a um, retired fighter pilot, you know, aeronautical engineer, you know, he was really good at math. And I really struggled once we hit algebra and he, that poor man just beat his head up against the wall, trying to get, pull me through <laughs> algebra. Anyway, that's going yeah. way back. So one of the things I love about syndication, especially raising capital, the really fun part of it for me is it's not, it's not really, it's not sales, Mm. it's education. Mm. And that's mostly what, you know, you're doing is there's so many people who have no idea this world exists. They sort of like their, their knowledge of real estate, you know, begins and ends with HGTV and (laughs) buying a single family home as a rental property. And even then, most of them are thinking, well, if I, if the rent is more, more than the mortgage, then, hey, I'm making money, you know, but so much of it is just education. It's just explaining to people how it works and, and why, and why it's a good opportunity and things like that. So it's really, and I'm not sure there's a question in there. Uh, no, well, look, other than, you, you bring up a good point and that's to be an effective syndicator it is the role of the syndicator to educate those around them uh, about the benefits. And so I had a question one time when I was speaking on stage about, oh, what if your investor doesn't know X, Y, Z? I was like, well, that's your fault (laughs) because you didn't explain it well enough and you need to, you know, and even if you don't know the answer, it's okay to say, hey, I'm going to go find out what the answer is of that particular question. And and even to a date, like I'm this morning, I had a question from an investor I had to go back to my accountant on. I, I had a, one of investors picked up a, a, a typo in the PPM and I had to go redo that. You know, like, so there's always little things that we're always trying to make better and, and people. And it, the beauty of having investors in your deals is that there's multiple eyes on, on across all your legal documents, across all your numbers. Mm-hmm. So if, any, if there is any mistakes, people are going to pick them up, right? So that's another benefit of syndication. You have so many people just looking at the deal. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While we're on the topic of like knowledge and education, you mentioned that you did, you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Are there any other books that you really feel are super important for people to read for real estate in general, or maybe multi multifamily syndication specifically? Well, all of aside side, from, aside from your own. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great chapter in mine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, when I first, one of the biggest things that I've, when I first moved to the United States and, and I just talked a little bit about I've been to the equivalent of REAS, uh, Real Estate Investor Association meetup groups in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I remember like being pitched in Aussie, like six, seven, ten grand for a guru. And, and, and when I first came to the New York area in, in here in the States, I just remember how much awesome content there was and how easily accessible for like 30 bucks or 20 bucks at the door. I saw these great speakers telling me stuff that I was like, wow, I'd have to pay a, a guru in Australia for. But like just the, the sheer basics of, of understanding real estate, there was a book called Flip, F-L-I-P, the green book. I, think, I always forget the name of it. It's, it is actually out of my shop. It helps understand like how you go and look at, uh, you know, the suburbs. And this is starting in single families. So it's not talking about multifamilies specifically, but it's just a great way to, it's a book that just helps you get your mind wrapped around just the real estate world, how, you know, mm-hmm. the ugly house on the, on, the, on the nicest block and all that sort of stuff. And there, there, are, there are a lot of syndication books out there. I've written one myself, so I'm not, I'm not going to toot my own horn. But then on the other side, I've got to a point in my career where I'm not necessarily learning it myself because I've done it. Uh, and so I, I, look, I look at books like, you know, for, for inspiration, like the four-hour work week, you know, understanding the systems in, in, in your business. Um, there's a great book if, if people want to look about their personal branding called Key Person of Influence by uh, by Dan Priestley. I love reading the book right now, Principles by Ray, Ray Delalio. 
Dalio, I think it was pronounced that right. Dalio. Dalio, Dalio. And um, so just these sort of systems more sense building a business, building a brand, building a culture, building a mission statement, which is something that, again, doesn't answer your question of the how-to because one of the one of the big things about, you know, Richard Porto was it was so great at giving you the big picture but didn't actually give you the tools about how to go and do it. <laughs> so yeah. you need to get from this quadrant to that quadrant. Great, how? how? <laughs> thanks thanks robert appreciate yeah, that exactly so well I, I don't read much of robert stuff anymore again because i'm now into the you know more the nuts and bolts of building businesses and all that sort of stuff but yeah. great like the, the rich dad poured out and the flip book just sort of really basic stuff there was a book i think you know how to make money in cash flowing deals or, or multi-families it's i kind of again all these little books that you find on amazon over the years yeah. and you pick up and you oh great that's a good little you know and a reading on the train on the subway and and then all you, you forget they were the building blocks but to anyone listening out, out there i always challenge people to go and a simple thing is get to two or three networking events a month and through those networking events you're going to meet other people they're going to tell you things you're going to information overload and you're going to be able to take it on board and be able to you know, dissect it and digest it and then spit it out in terms of how you're going to go out and execute your goals and vision. And through that, they're going to, there's going to be great books to pick up and read. But like myself, I got to a point where I was sick of my nose in a book and I couldn't, mm-hmm. I was got to stop reading about real estate investing and just go and do it. So, um, yeah. so yeah, and also podcasts, right? These, these things, this is what we're doing right now. It's, it is, there's so much free information out there yeah. that being ignorant isn't an excuse anymore. So I, I do love that that we live in that world where it's all at our fingertips. Yeah. yeah. Well, most of the problem, I would say, most real estate investors' problem, you know, myself included, is is we're all savants about real estate and not so great about action. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, and a lot of and it comes from from a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, fear. Mm-hmm. You know, just procrastination, whatever. Yep. Um, accountability, lack of accountability. Yeah. That and that's why you know part of my story is that. I did burn all the ships back to Australia. Like I quit my job. I moved here. I was like, I had one shot and it was, I, and, and the thing that the resolve that knocking on doors and trying to find that first job is that, and, and I know Tony Robbins, I was going to forget his name. One yes changes your life and you get no, 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 no. Yes. And that changes your life. And so that to me was really the, the stepping stone and the snowball that really started it all. And then the other, the belief in yourself to back yourself, if that makes sense. Because if you've got it, if you can't back yourself, then who the hell are you going to back in life? Mm-hmm. And so having the vision and the, the inner self belief that you can do it, and that's it seems as cheesy as it sounds. It's like it's sort of you have to back yourself because it, you otherwise you're just going to said procrastinate and not do anything and sit on the fence and I'm just going to you know sit on the couch and not do what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and so having that accountability partner having the belief that you can push yourself and that we are put on, you know, on this earth to, to be better than, and be more and, and grow because that's the whole point. If you stop, if you stop growing or you stop learning, you stop growing. And um, yeah. I'm a huge believer of that. Awesome. So with that in mind, you know, would you, knowing what you know now, would you go back and still buy those duplexes or would you just go straight into large multifamily? No, I, I, I get this question a lot. I have been interviewed on a lot of podcasts. It's like, would you do anything over differently? And I don't mean to be a dick when I say this, but the answer is no, because I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I didn't make those mistakes, if I didn't mm-hmm. graze my knees, if I didn't back myself and, and have a dream that I wanted to come to the United States and live in, in New York. And that was the only dream, right? It was just, and then when I'd finished 
going around the world. I picked up the book Rich Dad Poor Dad and I just knew that I didn't want to live in my in a cubicle for the next 40 years of my life. I didn't know the answers to all that stuff, but you know, but my toddler brain was like, I don't want to be here and I want to be somewhere else and I just need to figure out how to get from A to B. And it goes back to that resilience and backing yourself. So I no, I, I don't have any regrets in my life and, and I'm definitely one of those people that I don't want any regrets because one of the biggest things is, is fear of regret itself. And, and I don't want to wake up when I'm 70 years of age and go, gosh, I wish I'd had a go at that because yeah. that is, you know, that, that you know, right now gives me, gives me goosebumps. Like I don't want that. And, and yeah. so I can, look, I can happily look back on, on the journey and it's only, only just beginning. I'm only 33 and I've been really proud of what I've achieved and there's so much more. I'm, I'm not that I haven't arrived. I don't ever think that I know it all, but I've just, I wouldn't do anything over regardless of those mistakes that I made in the beginning. And more, I'll make mistakes in the future and, and that's okay. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. It's a good reminder to people that no one gets where they are without this past that is probably riddled with mistakes or lessons learned and, and all these things because it it's, you know, the reason you get the question so much is that it's interesting. Like, what would you do now? But it's hard to, you have to get that knowledge to do what you're doing now. And so right. it's sort to, of a... <laughs> you have to you have to be hit the bottom of the barrel or scrape your knee to... We're all, our stories are all unique to ourselves. It makes us who we are, right? It makes you the animal lover, you know, the nutritionist. It's who you are. Right, yeah. and, and that, that's your DNA, and that's what you built in. That's what makes you the moral and ethically, and, and all that sort of stuff that brings up the juices inside of you that helps you get out of bed and say, "I'm going to go t- tackle the world." But it's a different story to me, and that's and different is okay. And you don't have to be emulate yourself on anyone. Oh gosh, I wish I knew that. I wish I did the path that, that, that Joe Blow over there did because we live in that world of social media and always comparing ourselves to everyone. And I think there needs to be a little bit less of that and more just like being okay with the past that you've come from. In order to build your future, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, you, I look, you talk about Gary V the other day, and uh, I was listening to one of his, his videos, and he's like, you know, he's talking about people in their mid fifties, and like, oh, they come winding down in life, and he, you know, he swears like a like a sailor, but, but um, yeah. <laughs> he, he was talking about it's like you're mid fifty, you've got at least thirty years left, like you just get warmed up, like don't, yeah. you know, like, and it's there's part of that which can is a bad messaging, and, and which also means you constantly got to push yourself, and you always got to be comparing and pushing and pushing and pushing that has um, issues in itself but it's also on the same side that it's on the other side of the coin is a dog's never too you know you can always teach an old dog new tricks and yeah. you know like you're never you're never too old to start whatever you want to start and, yeah. and back to your fear you know as you get older we tend to fear things more and oh we've got a family and I need to be in a day job because I need to do xyz and I can't go out and do this entrepreneurial thing. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not telling anyone to go be an entrepreneur, but yeah. if you have that drive and that passion and you want to figure it out and you want more from life, then go out and do it. Yeah, there's a way. There's a yeah. way to figure out how to do it. You can always you know, go off on a different path in a way that makes sense for you. When I think you really, you know, I, I think that one of the key things that I've seen from people who sort of get past that fear is one, they either get so comfortable with the knowledge that, they sort of understand what's going to happen or they find someone to hold their hand on that first deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that could be either buying a turnkey, you know, uh, which I actually, I don't, I don't particularly recommend, but you know, it's, I think it's a, not a bad way to kind of have that hand holding first deal or they in, invest 
they hire an expert. They, they invest. They invest in syndication. Uh, there is ways to invest in real estate truly passively, and you know that's what you do, and yeah. and that's what you guys are teaching about, right? And so yes. it's, it's it's really admirable. It's like well yeah. done. And lastly, I actually want to go back, you know, I don't think you're being a dick when you answer the question that way, because I I get, I sort of bristle when I hear people who've made it, you know, especially I hear it from a lot of multifamily syndicators and I hear it from self-storage syndicators and like, oh God, you know, I would have skipped everything that I did and gone straight to here. I would have skipped it all. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're, you're operating from the hindsight of, of all those bumps and bruises and somebody trying to move that boulder of a big multifamily deal, it's, it's daunting, you know, right. and they, you don't realize that they had a lot of momentum once they started trying to push that boulder. Yeah. Like there's so many people say, Oh, you'll block, you know, the reason you're so successful is because you got started in the last downturn. Okay. Yeah. I, the, the old Chinese proverb of you should have best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is right now. So yeah. it coupled with, I think, you know, for me personally, and I've struggled with this in throughout my entire entrepreneurial life, is like you think you're going to hit financial freedom sooner than what I did. And uh, it took me a lot longer. And I combine it to go back to the, the fitness analogy of like people quit losing weight or whatever because their mindset on the front end isn't like they're like, I'm going to lose it in 30 days and get 10 or 30 days. And like, I didn't lose it. I'm quitting. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and it goes back to financial freedom. It's a long journey and I'm sitting here today. I'm not going to tell you you're going to do it in a year or two years. You might. Good on you if you do. And, you know, but the average person and I'm the average person, it took me, I picked up Richard Put out in 2009. I'm now 10 years later. I finally, you know, I've been financially free for over 18 months, you know, in my business working for over two years. It took that long. It, it literally took days and nights and moving halfway across the world to figure it out. So if I can do it, so can you. And my message to people is like, if you have the right mindset on the front end, you're going to be successful. Like, don't think it's going to happen overnight. It's, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And give yourself the time because other factors like kids and, and having a house and, and job and all that sort of stuff, that adds time to your journey. And that's okay. And it's okay that we can enjoy the journey along the way. And, and I guess there's this whole mindset in America and really in the Western world and human nature of like, we, we rush through school, we get through school, we're now into university, we rush through university to run, rush through life to get to 65 to hopefully retire and then start enjoying our life only at 65. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'm definitely putting up my hands saying, screw that, I'm enjoying my life now because it is, it is, you know, you don't enjoy a song to listen to right at the end of the song because that's the best bit. You listen to the entire thing because that is what it makes a song enjoyable. It's what mm-hmm. makes the journey enjoyable. And I think having that mindset about that that yes, you want to achieve financial freedom, we want to start investing in real estate, but it does take time, does take the right type of mindset and it's okay to run your own race and your background of where you've come from is yours and truly makes you the person you are today and that's okay as well. (laughs) All right, all right. So what does a day in the life of Reed look like as a multifamily syndicator? What is a day in the life? So I am a morning type of guy. I definitely like to get up and I'm usually up by no later than 6.30 every morning definitely as I transitioned out of working full-time and trying to do my business, I that six, 6.30 was originally 5.30 because I had to get up an extra hour before to go to the gym or whatever to then go do a day job. But now, you know, if I sleep until 7.30, that's a sleep in for me. <laughs> but the day I, I'm, I go, I have an office now because I couldn't work in my home anymore. I needed a place to go. But the day I get up, I usually um, I, I walk the dog. I have my juice of the morning. Have a coffee, 
I try not to turn my phone on before uh, 7.30 a.m. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hugely about writing down my to-do list for the week on a Sunday night so I know I plan the week out. And usually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, pretty busy. Thursday, Friday, uh, pretty relaxed. And, um, and then, you know, just before coming on this podcast, I had a bit of work to do, uh, excuse me, for the current deal. But I'm always, I'm always kind of working, but I'm also I'm in control of my own time. And that's what I love most about it and uh, about this, this, this world is that I can like I'm off to, um, you know, at the end of the month, we're doing an apartment swap with uh, a couple in New York. They're coming to have our apartment. We're going over there to have their apartments. The fact is that my wife and I work for ourselves. Like, why not? I love New York. Let's just go. It's free rent. <laughs> and yeah. I get to, I, as long as I've got internet, I'm also doing a lot more traveling. Uh, I travel to Texas nearly every, every month. And, and I'm probably talking to my business partner at least four or five times a day. And uh, checking in on the team. So yeah, gotcha. That's awesome. So you, that, you will be very prepared for if you have children. If you decide to have children, getting being an early starter because <laughs> you don't get to choose that after they <laughs> they're born. That's just tell what my, time you wake tell up. My wife, tell my wife that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do you see now as your most high value task on a daily basis? Like, what is the one thing it's like, you wake up every day. What's the one thing that's like, you know what? I've got to get that done. Just nobody else could do it. Well, so I, this is interesting it, it, and I might digress a little bit, but they'll come back to that is that when I was working full time, 40 hours in a week, I was so busy with work and I was working in the ground up construction for a developer in Long Beach. Like that, I had a pretty stressful job. Then also trying to do deals on the side, which we were doing. And I was so bloody busy, I didn't have time to scratch or think. I was also putting out a lot of fires. And so now, in and around the mission of life by design, I want to live my life how I want to live it. I'm really about today cultivating systems in my business so I can essentially fire myself if I want to. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen over the next three, four, five years. And so, you know, really much being in the what I call black time. So, you know, I, I break my time up in the day to black, blue, and red. Uh, black being this sort of stuff, podcasting, talking to investors, speaking on stage, thinking about the next episode of my podcast I want to do, maybe some thought leadership stuff in around the next book I want to write. And the blue stuff is is more the, think of like the, the manufacturing line. So I've got to look at deals, got to have deal flow, got to get them underwritten, got to get up to date on my properties and how they're performing and, and check in with the onsite managers and do the asset management stuff. And, and really, I want to spend probably 50, probably 60% of my time in black and 40% of my time in blue. And then red's all the administration stuff that I, every now and then I have to do a bit of admin. Like I was doing a little bit of admin stuff before here, but I don't want to have to do much of it. And we've started to hire that out. So, and, and as we grow, my first, you know, my next employee will be a full-time asset manager. So I can start bringing myself out of that day-to-day mimusha. I don't want to completely be unrelated to it because I'm definitely a guy that is I can roll up the sleeves and get dirty and I'll never ask an employee of mine to do a task that I couldn't do myself or that I'm not comfortable with doing myself uh, and I've been you know when being a solo entrepreneur you learn everything you learn the accounting you learn the underwriting you learn how to you negotiate deals and all the negotiate contracts with general contractors because it's only you and and when you start building the systems and building the team you can start to step back a little bit and, and make sure you're the puppeteer, making sure everything's going correctly and being effective at that. And so that is why I'm very much steering the ship towards, well, how do I be an effective leader in my business to, to inspire people to do 
a job as good or as better than I can and I can get out of their road and make, let them do their job. And so it's a learning curve for me right now. I don't know. I don't know everything. Again, I don't know everything about that, but it's really interesting to me because that's how I'm going to be effective as a leader, as a CEO of my company as I continue to grow over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Answered a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> like all the ones in that <laughs> sort of vein of questioning. Yep. It's yeah. awesome. It's perfect. <laughs> All right. So I think we've kind of probably already answered this, but so you, you live in LA, you invest Mm -hmm. in Texas mostly Mm -hmm. and probably plan to continue to invest in those types of markets. And you said you, you visit Texas once a month. Yep. If you, do you travel? Do you feel like you could do that? If you didn't have to to visit those once a month, do you feel like you could? Oh, go I travel off? a lot. I'm I'm off to Japan to the Rugby World Cup in October. I'm going to New York. Oh, cool. Just, just, yeah. Just, just, I'm back to Australia for Christmas. No, I'm I'm anywhere I have a computer, I'm working. So, and, and my business partner and I are completely aligned like that. Like Andrew just went and spent two weeks in Colorado. He's yeah, you know, he's got kids, so he's a little bit more set in stone. Me and my wife, particularly this year, have really you know, lent, lent into, well, we work for ourselves. Why don't we, you know, jump off to Mexico? As long as we're on the same, we're in the same time zone, we can make it work. And even in Australia, halfway across the world, I it's uh, 6 a.m. in the morning, I can get up and I can have four-hour overlap with Andrew and Texas and my team because it's, it's three, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the, day, okay. the day behind. So, like, anywhere in the world that I am, I'm very intentional about making sure that I'm always checking in, always making sure that I'm doing my job. And I don't, I'm not just off on a beach somewhere, but... You know, I do try to get away maybe once a quarter for, for a couple of weeks. And uh, and again, it's being intentional about my life. It's not waiting till I'm 65 to do that thing that I really want to do. I really want to go to Japan to the Rugby World Cup. Do it. <laughs> you yeah. live once, you know, so I'm going. And, we'll, you know, the, the thing is when you do that sort of stuff, only real fires boil to the top and it goes back to being really intentional about your time and the black, blue and red time and when, you know, particularly when I'm away, I know Andrew can only call me certain times, so I'm only going to hear about the real burning issues when I do have the two or three hours or four hours overlap. And yeah. great, okay, perfect, yeah. got got the update. And and honestly, in the, in the business that I'm in, when we do third party property management, when we do third party general contracting, it is about that tweak in the knobs. It's not necessarily about you know we got a call from our property manager the other day, an incident happened on site, and we're like, well, thank you for letting us know, regional manager. Andrew and I was like, I'm glad I'm not in the property management business. Hang up, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Sucks that for was, you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks I'm for taking care of that for us. Down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's Tim Ferriss. I think in the four-hour work week, he talked about the power of sort of letting go, letting go mm-hmm. a little bit, and and that his business that you don't want to be the um, the choke point in your business. Nope. No, you know, work on your business, not in your business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. And, and I'm learning that, you know, being a, trust me, guys, I, if I could control freaking, every, I'm an engineer, I want to take it apart and put it back together again. And I want to be able to control everything because I do think business systems, uh, so business ecosystems are the fundamental way in which we create true long term wealth. So I invest in multifamily. Yes, I could get to a point where, and I definitely will steal the shit towards where we get to a three, 4,000 units and I'll bring property management in house. Now, I would not run it myself. I'd have to hire the right person to run it. Um, same with general contracting. The question you, I, I, I constantly ask myself is, do I want to go and take over that part of the business in order to skinny down the costs and, you know, mm-hmm. or, or do I just leave some profits on the table 
and can get away to Japan for two weeks or can get away to Australia for Christmas where I'm not having to run, uh, you know, teams. And, and Andrew and I constantly joke about that. If we ever get to a point where we need a HR manager, we're done growing. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so it, again, back to the Tim Ferriss thing, it's got to, you've got to work on your business, not in your business. And yeah. really understanding and, and even through my podcast, I've interviewed so many people who tried that, oh, I need to be the GC, I need to be this, I need to be all the things and realising they're just working 100 hours a week and their family life sucks and, and they just realize, but I don't, I can leave some profits on the table. I'm still making a lot of money over here. I don't need to control every facet of it. Even though I think, you know, having business ecosystems are really great. I think it's just about finding the right people to fill in those positions. Yeah. So, yeah. So what advice would you have for someone to get started in real estate? Um, the biggest thing is education, obviously. The, the number one piece of advice is, again, Goes back to this thing I said before. It's mindset. What What do you really want out of real estate? Ninety nine point nine percent of people, it's a vehicle to wealth or it's a vehicle to financial freedom. You need to figure out the why you're doing it. Why is it for your is it for your family? Is it for free up time? You're sick of your day job. What is it? And then when you understand what your why is, you can then start going and understanding. Well, what's the best investment opportunities to invest into it? Make me help me achieve that why. And then back to the mindset of like it will take five, seven, maybe even 10 years. And that's okay. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And they're having all those things in place and it's constantly putting one step in front of the other and going mm-hmm. to start off with those three networking events that I spoke about. Start off with listening to three podcasts a week on real estate investing. Pick up that book and read it. They're all very simple things that you can do. And being an entrepreneur and changing your mind shift means that you're going to have to start living and breathing it. I talk mm-hmm. a lot about fitness. Fitness is part of my life. If I don't do it, I get stir crazy. Being an entrepreneur is part of who I am is my DNA. Now I have to develop that over time and it will mean working a few extra hours if you do have a day job, but that's okay because you're putting, you're reinvesting into you, yourself and about education or about you know, a new thing that you didn't have any, you didn't have a clue about. And, and, you know, real estate investing for me, I'm self-taught. You guys are probably self-taught as well. You didn't go to university for it and that's okay. That's a lot of people make money doing that. And so um, it's just about having the, the, the resolve to, pick up the book and just start reading, start listening to podcasts, start going to those networking events, putting yourself out there in order for you to, to learn more and be a sponge and just absorb it all. So, yeah. Well, Reed, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. You've got uh, the book, which is available on amazon.com. Uh, we'll put there that in the show notes as well. There it is. Investing <laughs> in the US by Reed Goosens. Pick it up. Yep. If any of our guests want to find you, what would be the best way they can reach out to you? Yeah, look, jump onto my website. It's reedgooses.com. It's uh, so Reed is spelled a bit weird. R E E D G O O S S. There's two S's in there. E N S dot com. Uh, you can check out the book. You can check out the podcast. You can reach out to me if anyone is coming through LA. I'm I'm pretty accessible. Uh, if they do want to meet up for a beer or a coffee or lunch and just talk shop, more than happy to do it. Also, one other thing: all the the proceeds from my book are going to charity, a cancer charity back in Australia. It's very dear and near and dear to my heart. If you pick up the book, you'll understand why. Because in the first, it's in memory of my mum who recently passed away. So it's not that it's not a sob story, but it's just more that I, there's a mission behind it more than just flogging books. It's, not, mm-hmm. it's about it's about my story and uh, and yeah, just jump on my website. And as I said, if anyone is in LA, please hit me up. Okay. Awesome. I will probably do that. We're right down the road in Las Vegas. So yeah. awesome. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we have other friends there, so we're we come not often, but yeah. when we can. <laughs> cool. Awesome. It was great talking to you. You too. Thanks, guys. Okay, it was Reed Goosens from Wildhorn Capital, also host of the fabulous Investing in the U.S. Check that out on iTunes. 
So what do you think was uh, the biggest lesson learned for you on this one? Well, I don't know if any of these are always like the biggest lesson I've learned, but the most interesting for me or the most important thing that I pulled from it was just the reminder that your past is sort of the path to where you are now. Oh, that's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. I'm sorry. Interrupted. You know, sorry. Should (laughs) have gone first. (laughs) But yeah, you know, the, the, where you are now has been paved basically by your mistakes and your lessons and, and, you know, the things that you've done in the past. And it's really important to remember that and not, you know, think back and go, well, I shouldn't have done all those things or, you know, I should have gone straight to this one thing when really you probably wouldn't have been able to go straight into this, this other place because you wouldn't have had the knowledge really. I mean, like, yes, if you magically had the knowledge you had now back then, then sure you could probably, but like no one has that. So it's, it's just a good reminder. Cause I think people get into that place of like, well, if I'd known this or if, if I were in this other place, you know, and it's, it's easy to get there. Um, you know, he talked about this a lot in different ways. It's easy to sort of feel like, well, I should be here or I wanted to be here and I'm not, or, you know, that person did this and, and it just, it takes time and you have to make mistakes and you have to learn things and you have to do things in order to get somewhere. And, and it's okay to have all those things happen. Well, you know, it's um, the whole idea of fail faster, fail faster and learn from it. We, you know, we, we so often forget all the things that we learn from failure. Most people learn more from failure than they do from success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's those, it's those bumps and bruises that really allowed you to sort of get where you are. So mm-hmm. for me, since I'm having to think on the fly because you stole mine, I would say the idea of scale. You know, Reed talked about those first properties that he bought. You know, it was, a little three, it was a little triplex. Aside from the fact that he was probably in a lower rent market than you want to be because you, you've just got much more challenging tenants. It was also the idea that, you know, especially being a, a triplex with low rent, that makes it, you know, you're not going to be a real high priority for a property manager. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's in a rough neighborhood <laughs> because the property manager is not getting paid enough to buy a bulletproof vest, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or, or just deal with all the issues that can come up when you're dealing with. Yeah. If, um, if you're doing a percentage based yeah, uh, I mean, payment, there's like, just not like how much, you know, how hard are they going to work to go across the street to pick up a dime? Mm-hmm. And he, he talked about it. We didn't delve on it too long, but he talked about if you're going to buy single family homes, try and buy, don't just buy one, you know, buy four in mm-hmm. the same area so that, and have the same property manager so that now you've got the property manager's attention. Yeah. Uh, you're not just one house that he's making 80 bucks a month on, on a thousand dollar. Yeah. You're kind of consolidating exactly. the business into one person yeah. and that gives them more reason to, to actually do their job. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So I don't even feel like we really have to go over this because we've talked about it so much, but like, how did he get his knowledge and and how long did it take him? He read, he just read a lot of books. Well, no, he also went to networking. He went to networking. He he read books, but he, he really was, I think he didn't say it like super outright more than a couple of times, but he, he definitely at the end when he was saying like the advice that he would give, he said, you know, read a book, go to two networking things a week, you know, do, um, you know, do these things where you're doing all the things sort of to get that education and then do the thing. And yeah. So, and he said, he probably did that for about six months before he bought his first property. 
Well, he was also a student of real estate. He had first read Robert Kiyosaki's book back in 09, but I would say he probably, it sounded to me like he was really in earnest once he came to the United States and started reading and going to RIAs and things like that. So yeah, six months. How much money did it take him to get started? He said that the first property, he bought it for about 38000 put about 10000 in it, so 50K. Yeah. About, I have no idea how much it was to do his first syndication. We didn't really get into the numbers there. You know, the, the, the weird thing about syndication is that it's the ultimate other people's money. True. Um, you really, it's not like a zero money down, but it's really, it's more about the knowledge and the putting the deal together. And most of any of the money that you put into it, as we talked about with Joe Fairless and some of our, our, one of our previous ones gets paid back by the syndication when you close in the deal. Mm-hmm. So really it's almost no money down, yeah. um, but definitely his first deal was, you're right. It was about $48,000 all in. He was, was complicated by the fact that he didn't have, he wasn't a U.S. citizen, didn't have credit. So yeah. he couldn't get, he had to come in with cash. Yeah. Um, couldn't get any loans or anything. Yeah. So how much time does he spend on his business? It's a full-time job. I mean, yeah. we and we've talked to syndicators in the past that I mean, it's it's a full-time job. You are you are an active real estate investor who is supporting passive investors. Yeah, uh, yeah. and you're taking care of their money. But when what's nice, and I think I think I made this mistake early on when you know you started getting into real estate and thinking about it. In my mind, it was like well, we'll buy some stuff and then like we won't do anything else, and that's you know I won't have to do anything. And then we'll have this like freedom of like time and location and that kind of thing. And that's not really how it is. And and that was sort of naive thinking, but it's, you get to a place where you have the flexibility. Like you said, they're going to Japan for the world cup because they want to, and they've managed to set up the systems and, and, you know, have the people in place to be able to make that happen and, and not have it affect uh, the business. So you know, it's, it, it's something that he continues to work on because as long as he has internet, he can, but it's a flexible sort of situation where he can do it on his times timeline. And as long as he gets certain things done, like he's, he's yeah. well, it's a really powerful thing. Once you control your time, I mean, he still has to do work, but he can, he controls his time. And that's a big, you know, that's a big deal for people. Mm-hmm. The only really truly passive real estate investors are the people that invest in syndications, you know, you're, you're putting in, you're giving up control mm-hmm. uh, in exchange for diversification because you can, you can move your money around to multiple operators and asset classes and geographies. And you're also, you're getting your time back. Yeah. Um, so you're yeah. getting paid a pay to return and, and someone yeah. else is taking care of it for you. So, yeah, well, and I mean, those people may not be actively investing in real estate, but they still have jobs that bring them that money. There's, there's, you know, there's very few people that are really probably working, not work, not doing anything that haven't like fully retired and are living off of, you know, some kind of savings uh, payout. So anyway, just interesting. And then we already talked about this. Is it location dependent? Absolutely. Is it location independent? Yes. (laughs) There you go. Yes. You know, he said he can pretty much do it anywhere he's got internet access and access to a phone. Um, now we talked, I remember we chatted with um, Annie Dickerson from mm-hmm. Good Egg Investments back uh, a while back, and she's a she raises capital for syndications. And she actually said, yes, but 
the challenge for her is time zones. And Joe, Joe Farrell has talked about that as well. Mm-hmm. Time zones can be a problem. And then having kids around. If you're traveling somewhere and you've got your kids with you, the kids are probably not in school. So they're going to be underfoot, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. but the answer, you know, with, with Reed, Reed travels to Australia a lot. And actually he said it actually works out pretty well because he's got some good overlap. He and his partner, the time zones work. So yeah. So, yeah. So well, that's a, yes, it is possible. It's location independent. independent. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, this is sort of in the nitty gritty and most people probably yes. don't need to know the, this information now, but if you're traveling a lot and that's super important to you and you do have kids, there are ways to make that work and, you know, not have it be too big of a deal. There's always people you can hire. Mm-hmm. There are systems you can put in place <laughs> to make your life easier, even when it comes to your children. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been, I think this has been our longest episode ever. So if you've stuck with this until now, thank uh, you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably have because I had a lot of fun talking I to Reed too. and I found it to be really interesting and inspirational and educational. And so hopefully you guys got that out of it as well. So until next time, let's hit the road. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> Bye. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.